which is where we'll spend our time together. You probably do not know the name Pam Reams, but it's an important name in my life, and it's actually an important name for this church because without it, for better or for worse, I don't think I'd be your pastor today. Pam Reams is my mom's cousin, and when I was a kid, she was the person that invited me to church most often, consistently invited me to church. Uh, her son Chris was close to my age, and Chris and I became best friends. We lived down the road from one another, spent most of our childhood together, and so regularly his mom, Pam, would talk to my mom and invite our family to things like vacation Bible school, uh, the Harvest Fest, because we're Baptists, so it's not Halloween, it's Harvest Fest, right? Uh, so Harvest Fest at Red Lane Baptist. Um, I remember attending a handful of those things. In fact, at vacation Bible school when I was eight years old, that was the first time I ever heard the gospel. I didn't particularly enjoy vacation Bible school, if I'm being honest with you. I was an unchurched kid. It all seemed a little hokey to me. Uh, plus, I was intimidated by it because I really didn't understand it. And, you know, they're singing like Father Abraham and many sons. I didn't know who Father Abraham was. Uh, so um, I do, though, remember being brought up to the sanctuary from, you know, we'd be down in the basement with our VBS class. They brought us up to the sanctuary and Pastor James Wood came out in a suit. I thought pastors just lived in suits because he was in a suit and it was like, you know, Wednesday at 11 a.m. And uh, he came out and he shared the gospel with us. And that's the first time I ever heard it. I remember going to the Harvest Fest dressed like a mime and winning the costume contest. Um, still proud of it, obviously. So what I didn't know is that God was at work in my heart. Um, very much so. I can look back and I can see times where I prayed as a child, even though we didn't go to church, or I would get the Bible down off the shelf at my parents' house and read it. That was all God working in my heart. That was all Him wooing me to Himself. But He used the invites of Pam Reams uh, and those times where I'd go to Red Lane Baptist Church. Uh, he used those in a significant way in my life to draw me to Him. When I was 14... My father had just become a Christian, and we went to Red Lane Baptist Church because, again, the Reams family invited us. So there are a lot of factors that went into me becoming a Christian on July 14, 1999, and I think about them often, and I recount God's grace to me, but one of the biggest factors was Pam Reams inviting her cousins to church. She brought us closer to knowing Jesus. And as we head into the new church year, these are the sorts of efforts that are on my heart. Efforts in which we love people, and we intentionally pray for people, and we invite people to church and to church events and to fellowship um, events and, and gatherings and small groups, um, efforts to welcome people, efforts to share the good news of Jesus with people. And that in doing all this, we would be bringing people closer to knowing Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage where Peter is brought to Jesus. And we're going to leave ourselves with one big question that will hopefully be impactful for us throughout the year. 
A little context in these verses before I read. Uh, right now, in our Luke study, which we'll pick back up next week uh, at the end of Luke 12, uh, we are in what you would call the later Judean ministry of Jesus. So at, at that point, he's on his way to the cross. Um, it's probably the fall of his final year of ministry in Luke 12. So we still have the winter and then the spring to go, but we're heading toward the conclusion. And I know you're like, but we're only halfway through the book. And that's just the way Luke works. It, it kind of goes really fast and then it slows down uh, at the end and stretches out. This morning's passage is a rewind to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the springtime of his first year of ministry, a full three years before his crucifixion and his resurrection. And in the passage, John the Baptist is introducing Jesus to his disciples, and his disciples are introducing others. So let me read for us John 1, starting in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. First of all, I want us to look at John the Baptist's proclamation of who Jesus is here in this passage. He's standing with two of his disciples. He sees Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold means look and see, listen, right? It's, it's hey, attention here. Behold the Lamb of God. It's very similar to what he says just a few verses earlier uh, prior to Jesus' baptism. John chapter 1, starting in verse 29, says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And I want to spend some time with this because even though evangelism is important, Highlighting who Jesus is in the context of sharing our faith is also important. I think that sometimes we don't always boldly share our faith the way that we might want to is because we, like I just prayed, we get forgetful about who Jesus is. We get forgetful about how glorious he is. So why does John call him the Lamb of God? We don't actually see lambs being used as atonement offerings in the Old Testament. It's bulls and goats. So why is he the lamb of God and not the bull of God or the goat of God? Neither of which sound quite right in our mouth, right? After saying lamb of God for all these years. But why is it lamb of God and not the bull of God or the goat of God? Well, there's a few reasons, I think. If you go back to Genesis 22, you have that scene with Abraham on Mount Moriah and his son Isaac is on the altar as a sacrifice. As Abraham and Isaac went up to the mountain, Abraham showed his faith. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for an offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
So they went, both of them together. So Abraham had faith that God was going to provide. And at the last possible moment, after Abraham had displayed his faith, God said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know now that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looks up, and what does he see? He sees a ram, right? He, he sees a male sheep caught in the thicket. And that sheep becomes the substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac. He dies in Isaac's place. In the same way that Jesus would be the substitutionary sacrifice for you and for me and for his church. Then you get to the Exodus. As God prepares to bring his final plague on the Egyptians, the death of every firstborn male, he's instructed his people to kill lambs that have no blemish, that have no spot, and then to paint their blood on the doorpost. And that blood was a sign that death had already occurred in that home, and therefore God's wrath would pass over the people, which is where we get the term Passover. And in the same way, Jesus' blood painted on the doorposts of our hearts enables the wrath of God to pass over us. And then in Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus' birth and yet so clearly about Jesus and his life and his death, you see in verses 6 and 7, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Our sin was laid on Christ, and he was like a sheep led to the slaughter on our behalf. And so all of that imagery is in play. When John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when he says, behold the Lamb of God, all of that is in play. These are words given to John the Baptist by God as a prophet, and these prophetic words coming out of his mouth are about the Son of God. And this is who we worship this morning. This is who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. He is the unblemished, spotless, holy lamb who deserves nothing but praise and was slain in our place. And he is the only hope that you have for eternal life. He is the only hope that I have for eternal life. He is the only hope that the people who live next to you have for eternal life. There is no hope outside of him. If you read the book of Revelation, you get to Revelation 6, and there are four horsemen. Okay, that's not Flair's boys, all right? That's not Tully and, 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 and those guys, uh, Barry Windham and, and Arne Anderson. Uh, what we have there are the judgments of God on a rebellious world. That's what the four horsemen in Revelation 6 represent. They represent God's judgment on the world. There's a white horse that represents a military conquest. And so throughout history, we have seen how that has played out, right? That constantly there are military conquests that are going on. And then there's this red horse that follows, which represents the blood that comes from such wars. And then there's the black horse of famine, because that's what happens when a nation becomes war-torn, right? It's hard to get food. There is famine. And then finally, there is the pale horse of death. 
This is what life is like in the last days in between the first and second coming of Jesus. So we've seen this in the last 2,000 years. As you look at the way history has played out over the last 2,000 years, there's this constant cycle of military conquests, blood, famine, death. And it's part of God's judgment on the world. We're seeing it in Afghanistan as we speak. There's a striving for power. There is blood. People can't get food. And there's been plenty of heartbreaking death. And that chapter of Revelation asks a final question there. It says, for the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? Unbelievers can't stand. If you read the text, they're, they're in caves crying out for the mountains to collapse on them because that sounds better than facing the wrath of God. So who can stand? The answer is the church of Jesus can stand. Because they stand victorious in Christ. Because the slain lamb is also a conquering lamb. But do you know who can't stand? It's those who are hopelessly lost without Christ. They buckle under the judgment of God. They buckle under conquest and slaughter and starvation. The unbelieving world, as we have seen, buckles under global pandemics. Buckles under natural disasters, personal crisis, and then finally, death itself. And what that means is, and I know this is not a surprising thing to hear your pastor say, it's a simple thing, and yet it's something that we cannot forget. What that means is the world needs Jesus. The world needs to take the instruction of John and behold the Lamb of God. This is what the world needs. There are people on your TV who tell you the world needs a Republican president. The world needs a Democrat president. The world needs this to happen in the stock market. This to happen in the economy. No, what the world needs is Jesus. Economies fail. Presidents fail. Governments fail. Education fails. All those things, I'm not saying they're all evil, all right? Don't hear me saying that as we start a new school year, okay? But what I'm telling you is that they're all thin compared to the hope and the eternal answer that Jesus brings. And so what the world needs more than anything is Jesus. Which leads us to the rest of our text today. Let's look at how the truth that John proclaims here, it, it moves in these verses. It's like a ripple effect through his disciples. So you got two disciples standing with John. They hear him say, behold, the Lamb of God. And what do they do in verse 37? They follow Jesus immediately. And Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say, we want to know where you're staying. This is them saying um, something more than just, you know, where are you lodging tonight? When, he, when they say, where are you staying, what they're indicating to him is, we want to follow you. We want to sleep where you sleep. We want to walk where you walk. We want to wake up where you wake up. We want to go where you go. So when they say, where are you staying, 
That is more than a simple question about his lodging. That is a question about following him, being a disciple of Jesus. And he says to them, come and you will see. So they go and they stay with him in verse 39. And then we find out in verse 40, one of the disciples who followed Christ is Andrew. It's Peter's brother. So what does Andrew do? He immediately goes to his brother Peter and he says, we found the Messiah. Now that word Messiah means Christ. It means anointed one. What he's saying is, Peter, all those scriptures you and I memorized as boys, when we sat under the rabbi's teachings in the synagogue, before we went and followed our dad and his trade, all those things that we learned, all those things we memorized, all those things that were were written into our hearts, they are about this man. This is him. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one that Genesis 22 was foreshadowing. It's all about him. This is the one that the Passover lamb was pointing to. Peter, this is the one Isaiah was talking about. And then we get to verse 42. It's got five words in it I haven't been able to get out of my head for the last six weeks. For six weeks I've been wrestling with this message. And it's these five words in verse 42 that have, have, I'm going to say burdened my heart. It hasn't been a burden to have them there, but they certainly have been resting on my heart. It's changed the way I, I look at interactions that I have. Interactions with 7-Eleven cashiers, interactions with people in the line at grocery stores, with friends, with family. I'd like to say it's changed every interaction, but like I've talked about a few times this morning, I get forgetful. But here are the five words. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. It's so simple But it's so powerful. Peter is one of the most important people that's ever lived on this earth. That's not an an overstatement. All right? That's not just me like trying to make Peter look, you know, more special than he is for the sake of the sermon. You, You can legitimately argue that the Apostle Peter is one of the most influential people that has ever walked on this earth. He was a driving force. His leadership behind seeing Christianity go from Jerusalem to the entire Roman Empire and then to the whole world. Just read Acts chapter 1 through 15 and you will see the leadership of Peter as the gospel moved out of Jerusalem into the nations. When Peter confessed, had a gospel confession about who Jesus was as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, I'll build my church on you which means I'll build my church on gospel confessions like yours. Peter's leadership, Peter's boldness, changed the face of church history and of world history. And how did he come to know Jesus? Did an angel come down from heaven and reveal the truth to him? Did... He have a vision. 
Peter has himself a vision in Acts chapter 10 when, when he realizes that he should be sharing the gospel with Gentiles like Cornelius. So Peter, Peter is a man of vision. But is, is the vision what brought him to Christ? Did the clouds roll back and, and like with Jesus' baptism, the Father's voice boomed from the heavens? Peter, this is my son Jesus. The answer is no, no, and no. His brother brought him to Jesus. It's so simple, and yet it changed the course of history. Andrew's following John. He meets Jesus. He becomes convinced he's the Messiah, and his first thought is what? I've got to tell my brother. I've got to tell my brother, and he brought him to Jesus. Who brought you to Jesus? As I ask that question, you've all got the, the, the faces of certain people maybe popping up in your heads. It's a threefold answer for me. I mentioned Pam Reams. In many ways, she introduced me to Jesus. And then it was my father who lived as the only believer in our house for about six months, and he won us over each day with his witness. And then finally, it was Clayton King an evangelist from South Carolina who led me and about 100 other kids to Christ on July 14, 1999 at a makeshift altar in a basketball gym at Gardner-Webb University. Who brought you to Jesus? Billy Graham was led to Jesus by Mordecai Ham. Ham was an evangelist. By the way, if you're born with the name Mordecai Ham, you're going to end up preaching under a, a, a tent roof with sawdust floors, okay? Like that's what you're destined to do, and that's what he did. So Ham came through Charlotte, North Carolina, and Billy went to go hear him, and that's when Billy came to Christ. But what was going on behind the scenes is Billy's dad had been gathering with other businessmen in Charlotte and praying together. And their prayer together was that God would raise up somebody out of Charlotte, North Carolina to take the gospel to the world. That was their prayer. And what Billy's dad didn't know was that it was his son. And so the prayers of his father and the preaching of Mordecai Ham brought Billy to Jesus. D.L. Moody, the great church planter and pastor and preacher, educator, chaplain to the Union Army, he was led to Christ by a Sunday school teacher. He was an uneducated shoe salesman, and his Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, brought D.L. Moody to Jesus. Chuck Colson was an attorney, and he was a political advisor to Richard Nixon in 1969 and 1970. When Watergate went down, Colson pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice, and he served seven months in a federal prison. While he's in that federal prison, he meets a man named Tom Phillips. Tom Phillips brought Chuck Colson to Jesus. When Phillips died at 94 years old, here's what Colson's wife said about him. She said, it's almost impossible to adequately describe my emotions when I heard that my friend Tom Phillips had gone home to the Lord. My first reaction, of course, was sadness that he is no longer with us, but then I couldn't help but think of Tom entering into the presence of the Lord and then reuniting with his wife, Gert, and my husband, beloved husband, Chuck Colson, and that gave me such comfort and joy. 
That night, back in 1973, when he met with Chuck and shared the gospel with him, changed Chuck's life forever. And it changed my life and the lives of countless thousands, if not millions of people around the world. Yes, I believe that God would not have found another way to reach Chuck if Tom hadn't been with Chuck that night. And that Chuck still would have gone on to start prison fellowship in the Colson Center. But the fact of the matter is that it was Tom Phillips, a man of great achievement and yet extraordinary humility and kindness, who responded to God's call and led my dear Chuck to the Lord. She mentioned prison fellowship in the Colson Center. Chuck Colson's ministry touched millions of lives in his lifetime. And still today continues to have an impact. And Tom Phillips brought him to Jesus. Let me ask you a question that I want to keep before us all year long. We've got it on a, on a bulletin board out in the hallway, what we call the S Hall, as you head into the kind of the greater part of the church when you leave the worship center. The, the, the hallway painted white. There's a bulletin board in there. It's got this question on it. Here's the question. Who is closer to Jesus because of your actions this week? Who's closer to knowing Christ because of the fact that you prayed for Him this week? You served them this week? You invited them to church this week? You called and checked on them this week? Who's closer? Who have you been a Pam Reams to? Who have you been a Mordecai Ham to? Who have you been an Edward Kimball or a Tom Phillips to? Who have you been an Andrew to? It's so easy to get tunnel vision, isn't it? It's so easy to wake up, just go about our lives, do the things we need to do, you love the Lord, you pray to the Lord, you read your Bible, but you compartmentalize that. It kind of becomes this private thing. You talk about it maybe in Bible studies, small groups, but it's not something that you are looking to bring up with people. There are some things I look to bring up with people. I'm an English soccer fan. I love the Premier League. I don't care what sort of jersey you have on. I, I can't stand Manchester United, okay? can't stand them. But if I see a stranger in a man New Jersey, I'm going to try to strike up a conversation about English soccer because I'm going, there's not that many of us who love this thing. And so let me have a conversation with them about it. If I see somebody wearing a pro wrestling shirt, like we're talking about Bret Hart and Ric Flair, I'm going to bring it up. There are things that we seek to bring up with people. If you're super political and you see somebody has a bumper sticker you agree with and you're going to the grocery store, you're taking your groceries to the car, you see them taking theirs, you might stop and have a conversation and say, hey man, I really like that sticker. We don't do this enough when it comes to our faith, when it comes to talking about Jesus. We get tunnel vision. As a church body, I, I believe we have a special thing going on here. For 10 years, I've gotten to be with you. We've married people. We have buried far too many in their final resting place until the resurrection. We've danced to VBS songs. We've run a basketball league. We've had some very hard days. We've had easy days, and we've had everything in between. When I look at this church, can I tell you what I see? 
I see a generous church. I have never, ever known of a church of about 220 active members that give over $900,000 a year to the Lord. Just an offering, that's not even counting the other things that are given uh, for missions, for debt retirement, and those sorts of things. Can I just tell you, it's crazy. It's crazy, all right? We, we give God the glory for our generosity. He's the one that works that in us. But can I tell you you're abnormal in a good way? Like, you go to lunch with other pastors who pastor churches of 220 people, those aren't the numbers. So God has blessed this congregation with an incredible amount of generosity. God has blessed this congregation to be a multi-generational church. My wife and I last night spent a bunch of time on our phones trying to figure out what do you call our kids? Like, I'm, a, I'm like a early millennial, late Gen Xer, 1984 is kind of on, the, on the, the, the brink there. We get grouped in with different people. My wife's a, a geriatric millennial, that's what they call her. <laughs> that's, what, that's what people in, born in 1989 are, I guess. So, um, geriatric millennials. And so our kids, we were looking it up, uh, apparently they're generation alpha, I, I don't know. I mean, they basically like digital stuff, okay? Um, but we've got boomers, we've got Gen Xers, the golden generation. Our boomers and our Gen Xers uh, here have been committed, remained committed through some hard years. You all bear so much of the volunteering and serving. We have a, a rapidly growing core of young families. If you've never just gone upstairs and looked in up there, if you can get up those stairs, then I would challenge you to do it. On a Sunday morning, before you go to your small group, just go up there and just, just peek in and see what God has done with that group up there of, of young families and young singles and professionals who are doing life together and finding their way in this world together and serving Christ together, um, who are learning from older generations on how to serve. In many ways, I look at that group up there and I say it's a sign to us that this church has a powerful future ahead of it. Young adults, they, they beat us in hospitality. Can I just tell you that? That the young adult group are better at doing hospitality than the rest of us. We all want to catch up with them. Like they're constantly just in each other's face every week, eating tacos and milkshakes and reading the Bible together and playing board games. But they are welcoming and they are hospitable. And no matter how odd or not odd someone is, I know that they can walk into that group and they can be welcomed. We have a student ministry that's had more teardowns and rebuilds than the Washington football team. Thankfully, Pastor David is a whole lot better than Daniel Snyder, the owner of the Washington football team. And when I look in that student center, I see about 15 kids that are super committed now. Poor, poor David came here, he's just starting to get to know people. COVID comes, wipes out the student ministry, and he's got to start over again. Like I said, more teardowns and buildups than the Washington football team. But now he's got about 15 students in there who are super committed to the Lord, to one another, to ministry. And I see momentum just building in a really big way. And we've got a children's ministry teaming 
kids who are being raised in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord with the best children's ministry director this side of the equator in Kimberly Milner. So you can clap. That's okay. You can clap for Kimberly. It's all good. She deserves it. I see a worship ministry that has doubled down on depth. It's what we want to be known for. Worship where every minute of the service has meaning, where every minute of the service we are confessing the truths of the gospel together, um, worship that reflects the multi-generational nature of the church. And I see a church that spends a lot of money on outreach and missions every year, that wants to serve its community and that is supporting the work in the nations. Now, I could go on, but I say all of that just to say to you that after 10 days away on vacation, I come back, and what I know is that this is special. But it's a special thing tucked away in an incredible neighborhood that a lot of people don't even know exists. I meet people all the time, and they say, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Where do you pastor? Seaford Baptist. Where's that at? Seaford they're like, what is Seaford? The best is when you're talking like a salesperson on the phone and they think we're seafood Baptists. That's always a good time. <laughs> and I say, oh, it's this neighborhood. It's behind the Kroger in Grafton. Like if you go down, you know, Denby turns into Goodwin Neck. You're down Goodwin Neck. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I've never been back there. I've heard that's nice though. I've heard it's a nice place. So I say that to say to you that a lot of people don't know, not only about us, but about the neighborhood, much less the churches in it. So they may not know about this place, but it's a special place, and it's a wonderful place for people to be brought to Jesus. Do we believe that? This is his body. He is here. And so it is time for us to put the lamp on a stand. Take it out from under the bed. To make sure that we are a city on a hill that is shining. This is a year where, and this is why Janet Dunn took these pictures and I asked her to get them put on canvas for us. And she's got a few more. We're going to put these up uh, in the church uh, after this morning. There's one out in the lobby. We want to take our feet, right? And we want to go for the Lord. We want to take our feet and take the gospel to the world. Take the gospel to to Robana Drive, right? We want to take the gospel to Cheetah Loop. We want to take the gospel to Pocosin. We want to take the gospel to Newport News. We want to take the gospel to Grafton, to Tab. And some of those places, like when it comes to Tab, I, I love when Tab people come over here to church. Don't get me wrong, that's awesome. We also love Bethel Baptist and Tab. So we're partnering up with them and their feet and taking the gospel to the world. But it is crucial that we go now. We've got to go. We've got to, we've got to throw off, cast off the tunnel vision and say, I'm, I'm not going to get tunnel vision. I'm going to go. And here's why it's crucial. It's because this is how the church grows. Let me show you a graphic. Why do people come to church? Barna Research Group did this, uh, this poll Zero to three percent because they were invited by a pastor. That's not because we're bad at inviting people to church. It's just because when we invite people to church, they go, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Right? Visitation. 
You go knock on somebody's door, cold call, go sit in their living room. Man, that's what you did 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? Who remembers visitation? Okay, a lot of you are raising your hand. Less than 1%. Small groups. I love small groups. We have small groups on campus and off campus, but only 4 to 6% of people who come to church for the first time come because of a small group. It tends to be something you do after you get into church. Church programs. That would be like upward basketball, um, you know, uh, Awana, like things like that, right? Things we, some things we have, some things we don't, but church programs, 2 to 4%. And then you look at the last one. Why do people come to church? 75 to 90% is because they were invited by a friend, a relative, or a coworker. Folks, the results are in. The church grows through the witness of its people. It's not close. That doesn't mean we don't do these other things. We just have to recognize that the main way that this church is going to grow is through the people of the church intentionally inviting outsiders into the body. Now, we're going to talk much more about this in the coming year. Luke will take us there. 1 Corinthians will take us there on Wednesdays. But can I just leave you with four challenges this morning? Four things I want you to commit to this morning, and I think you'll find that everybody here can walk away going, I can do that. I'll do that. Number one. Commit to praying for your neighbors through Bless Every Home. Bless Every Home is a program where you sign up and then you are sent names of your neighbors each day in an email. It's totally free. You sign up, you get the names of your neighbors, and you pray for them by name every day. And then um, maybe you start to let them know that you're praying for them. Maybe you start to care for them, start to share the gospel with them. But it starts just by praying with, uh, for them. We have cards on your way out today on the little black table by the the offering box that look like this. On the back, there's a QR code. If you've never used one of these, you just take your phone camera and just put it in front of that, and a little link's going to pop up on your phone. You touch the link, and you're going to be on the sign-up page. It's never been easier to sign up for Bless Every Home. But we also have... uh, our website, seaforbaptist.com, there, and if you go to our homepage, we have a link to Bless Every Home there as well. So it's super easy to sign up. Commit to praying for your lost neighbors every day. Second challenge keep a list of people you're praying for and try to reach, you are trying to reach. Keep it on your phone and your notes app if you're an iPhone person, whatever you Android people use on your phones, okay? Uh, I'm sure there's something uh, similar. Uh, Put it on your refrigerator, put it in your purse, put it inside your Bible, whatever you need to do. Put it in your wallet, whatever you need to do. Keep a list of people that you are trying to reach so that you will not forget to be intentional with those people. Number three, commit to praying like a missionary before you leave your house every day. This will keep us from getting tunnel vision. Before you step outside of your home, stop before you cross the threshold. And say, I need to remember who I am. I'm the light of the world. City on a hill is not to be hidden, right? He is sending me. As he was sent by the Father, he is sending me. So remind yourself of who you are and then pray to the Lord and say, God, wherever you want to take me, whoever you want me to reach, put people in my path today that need to know Jesus and give me the words to say to them. 
You know, I know this might be a little charismatic for us Baptist folk, but you might even want to like turn your palms up to the Lord. It's okay. You can do it. Before you cross that threshold, put your hands out and say, God, whatever you want to give me today, I'm here to serve you. Whoever you want to put in my path, I want to be a light to him. And then submit to his leadership and walk in his good works. He's already prepared for you, right? Go and be his workmanship. And then lastly, number four, before you go to bed at night, just ask yourself, who's closer? Who is closer to knowing Jesus today because of the actions that in the power of the Lord I took? I love this quote from Mark Cahill. And I hope it will motivate you to take these challenges to heart. And we'll put these out on social media tomorrow. Um, just so you don't forget the four challenges we've laid out. Cahill says, I can guarantee that there is one thing you cannot do in heaven that you can do on earth. You can worship God in heaven. You can praise God in heaven. You can sing songs to God in heaven. You can learn God's word in heaven. But one thing you cannot do in heaven is share your faith with a non-believer. Why? Because everyone in heaven is a believer. Do you realize that when you take your last breath, you will never again be able to talk with a lost person? Since that is true, shouldn't it be a priority to your life to reach out to all the lost people on earth while you can? Another thing that you'll see on your way out today is a little blue card that looks like this. It says, join me at Seaford Baptist. And on the back, it's got the information about when we have services. And so again, I would encourage you to take a few of these to keep them on you so you can give away to people. They're a little business card size. They're not, they're not uh, going to get in your way. Uh, super convenient. Just give them out to people um, and let them know that you would love for them to come and, and sit with you. Invite them to sit with you. Tell them a spot in the church. I'll meet you at this door at this time. Make it as easy as possible for people to be able to come to church. This is all I know. I want to say that to you as I close. A ministry built on the Word. We come here on Sundays, we worship together, we're built up as the church of Christ, we are edified by preaching and teaching of His Word. And then we are sent out as the workmanship of Christ into the world, and you enter your mission field, and you go with the Word of Christ. And every day you pray, and you represent Christ, and you reach out to people with what? The Word. And you bring them to Christ, and you bring them to church, and you bring them to His Word. And when Friday rolls around and you're like, I, I'm, I'm finished. I'm finished. i got nothing left. I've been trying to share the gospel all week. Had a couple of people laugh at me. A couple of people said maybe. I've been praying for people. I feel tired. I feel worn out. I feel empty. That's when you come back here and you get filled up all over again. And then you rinse and repeat. I'm going to walk down here. I want to talk, talk uh, real plainly to you for a second. Sorry, live stream people. Am I messing you up? Can you see me? I, I've spent so much time in the last six months, if I'm being honest with you, comparing ourselves to other churches and comparing myself to other preachers. I've been struggling with that a little bit. Right? It's been kind of a tough time coming out of COVID. And while I was away on this vacation... I went and played a disc golf course, and while I was walking on that disc golf course, getting brutalized by it. I lost a disc. I was way over par. It was terrible. But it was some good time with the Lord, and I thought, I said, man, my confidence isn't in me. 
Our confidence is in what? The Word. And I'm done apologizing for it. And we should not apologize for it. In fact, we should be more confident than ever to take it to the world. It's the workmanship of Christ. Let's take the Word to the world. Let's get to work. And so let's commit together to go, understanding that this is how the church grows. I don't, I, seeker-sensitive trends and what's in the newest church growth book and all that sort of stuff, I can't help you with that. I'm resolved to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Know it with me. Let's go preach it together. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you. You told the, the disciples to go to Jerusalem and to wait there, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we need your Spirit to empower our witness. I believe in this place and I believe in this people, Lord. We have so much going for us. We have so many strengths. And the devil would love it for us to only focus on our weaknesses. But enough with that. Because where we are weak, you are strong. Your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so, Father, I pray that we would take your word to the people who live next door to us, to the people we coach Little League with, to the people we see in the pickup line at school once they let us out of the cars again, to the people that we shop with, the people that we work with. God, there's lost people all around us. And when your word asks the question in Revelation 6, who can stand? They do not have an answer, but we have an answer because we are the church. We can stand because of Christ. And Lord, we have the answer for them so that they can stand. There are people whose lives have been ravaged by COVID. They've lost their jobs. They've lost family members. They've lost privileges they've enjoyed. They, they, they um, maybe because they're at risk, haven't been able to get out around people. They've lost half their 401k. There's people whose lives have been wrecked, Lord, by politics. They put their hope in politicians and it's failed them and they're so discouraged and they're so down about what's going on in the nation. There's people whose lives have been ravaged by um, cancer, which we hate, by um, the loss of, of family members unexpectedly, by grief, by disease. There's so many things, Lord. And the hope that they need is the gospel we have. So, Lord, we got to take the blinders off, and I pray that you would help us with that. We need to pray intentionally for the people around us. We need to write their names down so we don't forget about them. We need to pray like missionaries before we leave our houses every day. And before we go to bed at night, we've got to ask ourselves, who's closer to knowing you because of the actions we took today? Give us intentionality and give us, Lord, a spirit-empowered witness. And do your work through your church and in your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.